0: All right, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, through Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that once again we might appreciate Jesus Christ and all that he hath done to redeem a people unto himself and to cleanse us from all our sins and unrighteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. Um, Well, this week I wanted to start actually in um, Ephesians chapter 5 and pick up a couple of verses in there because we talked about this a little bit last week because it's important for us to understand as we're going through Genesis chapter 3 the relationship between Christ and his church and how it's typified in a marriage between a man and a woman how it's typified in that union between the two. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21... Um, It speaks about how we are to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. And verse 22 is a verse that all the young legalistic Christian men like to run to when they say, when it says wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So what I want to appreciate first off here is those two words submitting in verse 21 and verse 22 are the same. And by virtue of what we can appreciate in there, it's to be a willful submission. So I wanted us to understand that. The interesting thing is, just as Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, when he was asked who she was, he identified her as his sister. It was an equivocation, meaning he was telling the truth with the intent to mislead and to lie. I can say the same thing, that I am married to my sister because she's my sister in Christ. We have the same father, as did Abraham and Sarah, but we have different mothers, our Heavenly Father being one and the same. So, technically speaking, spiritually speaking, I am married to my sister. Now, how does that help us to understand what's uh, relevant here is, well, your wife could say out of verse 22, well, golly, I'm supposed to submit to you, Um, but verse 21 says that you're supposed to submit to me because we are equal in Christ. And God is not a respecter of persons. Uh, Male, female, black, white, red, yellow, free or bond, rich or poor, we are all one in Christ. And so it is true with my wife. And so there's an appreciation here about this is a willful submission one to another as wives would willfully submit to their husbands in love. And this is a parallel as um, Christ is the head of the church. And so as you continue to read in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even if Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Verse 24, therefore, as, and the word as there is a big word, as the church is subject unto, unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. So the church would willfully submit to um, Christ. That's the way the Lord would have it. He would not have it be compulsory because that's um, there's no satisfaction in that. I mean, if your children uh, behave you, as I've said before, because they think you will... Um, punish them, that's not nearly the same thing as if they obey you because they love you and desire to please you. And so that is what the Lord would certainly have us to do. Um, Now, this willful submission is rooted in meekness. And meekness is a characteristic of Christ, and it should be a characteristic of all of the Christians. Of Moses, it was said that he was submissive. In Numbers 12, verse 23, it says, quote, Now the man, Moses, was very meek above all the face of the earth. So Moses, who's leading approximately three million people through the wilderness, is described as being meek above all the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, when they did a census, they had uh, men, 603,550 men of war, uh, were led by Moses. And the context or the, uh, the way that we might understand meekness we would not think that that would apply to Moses, a man who's leading over 600,000 men of war. You would not think he would be a meek man. But God defines him as being meek because he is willfully submitting himself to the will of God. He's leading them according to God's providence, leadership, and guidance. Guidance. Now, of Jesus Christ himself, in whom dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the Lord says of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. Christ says of himself that he is meek and lowly in heart. And again, we can appreciate that he willfully submitted himself to his Father. He says in John 6, For I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Again, helping us to appreciate that he wasn't down here doing the things that he wanted to do independent of God the Father. He did what he wanted to do in the context of he wanted to submit to his Father. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, again, we're familiar with this, where the Lord is in the garden. He's praying. He's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and he says to his Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So we see complete subordination and submission in the Lord to the Father, and that is a defining characteristic of Christ when he said to be Um, meek. Now, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, the Lord says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Well, what mind would that be? Well, he says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem other better than themselves. And so that's the way we are to conduct ourselves in terms of our relationships within the church. Again, I'm sharing these things with you to help lay a foundation for why we would appreciate what Adam did when he was in the garden with his wife. This is a foundation I'm laying here. And keep in mind that Adam is a type of Christ. And so we need to view what took place in the garden as instructive and illustrative of Christ himself. So he says in here, again in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so here's the example of what Christ did. Verse 6, Who being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, it wouldn't be robbery because he is God. Again, in him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 7, but made himself. This is something Christ did. This is a willful submission. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Again, Christ doing this. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Again, this is what Christ did. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we have set here before us characteristics of what it means to be meek, his willful submission to the Father. And again, let this mind be in us also. That was in Christ Jesus. One of the characteristics of a pastor is that they shall, quote, not be self-willed. If a pastor is self-willed, well, then he's going to preach whatever his own thoughts are on Scripture as opposed to subordinating himself to God and preaching what God would have him to preach. Now, uh, back in Ephesians chapter 5 again, the Lord makes this very clear to us about what he is talking about. When you get down to verse 30 and uh, through um, 32 of Ephesians chapter 5, he tells us very clearly, speaking about Christ. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. So speaking about our relationship with Christ and how very intimate it is, we already read that Christ took on him the form of, um, of he took upon himself uh, flesh, and so he had was flesh and blood, he had bones, and so we are intimately related with him. We are members of his body. Verse 31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh, because they are bone of bone, they are flesh of flesh of each other, they are completely united. Verse 32, if there's any question what he's talking about, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, these very verses are going to come up in Genesis chapter 2, and again, that shall help inform us about why Adam did the things that he did. Now, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord tells us that, quote, it was not good that the man should be alone. So we know that Adam went out, or the Lord brought all the animals to him, and Adam named all of the animals. And we saw a parallel there, just as Christ knows who all his sheep are, and Christ gives names to all of his sheep. Every person in here was called by their name by God. And uh, we see that in the Gospels. Uh, Going through the Gospels, we see that the Lord calls disciples by name, and he even renames some of them. He who was formerly Saul is called Paul. So the Lord does that. He knows who everybody is. And so the point here comes from Genesis 1.26, that God is going to have a people that are both in his image and his likeness. And so again we have to appreciate that the fall of man is part of this process. The fall of man is part of that process that make man in the image and likeness of God. And so Adam is going to be faced with a decision and what's going to inform his decision is Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 that God will have men in his image and his likeness. And it's going to be informed by the, by the love that he has for Eve that he is, in fact, um, one flesh with her, uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so his decision is both rooted in his love for Eve, his unity with Eve, and his obedience to God. He's going to have uh, conflicting things to deal with. So let's start now in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And let's consider Satan uh, here for a moment. Um, Satan, we know, opposes all that is God. We read about him in a number of places in the Scripture. And by the way, when we go through Genesis, we're going to find certain men that uh, are a type of Satan. King Abimelech comes to mind uh, immediately here. But there are certain of those in Genesis that typify Satan. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, This starts out as a parable, or a proverb, rather, a proverb against the king of Babylon. And that starts in uh, Isaiah 14, verse 4. Thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. So what starts as a proverb against the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon obviously being a type of Satan, it's going to morph into very clear language about Satan himself. So you drop down to verse 12 of Isaiah 14. And he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Lucifer is a Latin word which means light bearer, and that's consistent with what we know about Satan who comes as an angel of a light, so it's a very appropriate word. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did suikest the nations? Now, here is the agenda of Satan. Verse 13, For thou hast said in thine heart, Remember, all things are naked and open under the eyes with whom we have to do, including the angelic beings. Everything is naked and open unto God. Thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Those will be Christians. I will sit among, upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Well, he's certainly not very meek here, so that's a characteristic, an attribute of of God or Christ that he um, is not going to represent. But he's very willful, as we can see, endeavoring to be like God and to be like the Most High. Now, one of the things that we can appreciate about Satan in terms of him wanting to be like the Most High is he wants to rule and reign over everything, and he wants everybody to worship him. And so I hate to be a spoiler, but if you flip to the end of the Bible, you will find out that everybody is going to worship him. In Revelation chapter um, 13, verse 4, it says, speaking of the people, I'll pick it up in verse 3, because he's speaking about the, the dragon here, "...and I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed." And all the world wandered after the beast. All the world is wandering after the beast. Now, the beast is, uh, is the government. And they, verse 4, and they, that would be the world, worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And who can make war with him? You've heard the um, colloquialism, you can't fight city hall. You can't. The Bible says you can't. Who's able to make war with him? Who's able to make war with the beast? You cannot make war with the beast because Satan is the power behind the beast. And the Bible here is telling you that all the world is going to worship the dragon, which is Satan. Verse 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All the world is going to worship the beast. All of the world is going to worship the dragon, except for Christians. Christians will not do that because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Scripture tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of the power of the air who worketh in the children of disobedience. He's the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Satan is the one who is directing people to do the things that they do. And we can appreciate that having seen, the, seen what took place with respect to COVID in this past couple of years is because all the world was behind this particular thing. Governments around the globe were coordinated in their response and their efforts and their associations in some ways with um, uh, with COVID. And so we could see that there was something globally happening in the world that united the world in this cause. And there has never been any time in history, with the exception of the Tower of Babel, when the world was united in anything. Um, Satan is the prince of the power that worketh in the children of disobedience. Um, he is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians four four identifies him as the God of this world. And so while we sit here and we read through our scriptures and we read the papers and look out the window, everybody's looking for a one world government. Well, the one-world government began in Genesis chapter 3 when man fell. And so, as I think Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. Everybody has a master. You are either a slave of Satan or you are a slave of God. You're in one of two camps. You're in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. And so the world does indeed have a one-world government, and it's always had it since the fall. Satan is the uniting effort behind the one-world government. Ultimately, we know that it's not going to end well for Satan. The scripture says that he will be cast into the fire of lake of brimstone, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. So if you continue to read in Isaiah chapter 14, you'll read about how he is cast down to the earth. And in Revelation 20.10, he is cast into the lake of fire. Now, Satan is ever at war and in opposition to the things that are God, but of a truth, he cannot overcome Christ. He cannot get to him. Scripture says he's going to bruise his heel, but that's all he will do, and he will be destroyed by God. Revelation 28 again tells us that he deceives the nation. He goes after everything else since he can't uh, destroy Christ himself. Revelation 13, 7 says that he makes war with the saints, and he's going to overcome them. He makes war with the saints, and he's going to overcome them. In Ephesians chapter 6, we know that we... Uh, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So again, the idea about a one-world government, it's uh, led by Satan through his ministers of righteousness. I'll put that in quotes. And um, works through various ga- agencies and governments that are the beast. And we fight against that. We're not fighting directly with another human. We're fighting the spiritual warfare. So, where did the spiritual warfare begin? Well, we're going to see it in Genesis chapter 3 here. So, the war with man, Satan against man, uh, begins here in Genesis chapter 3. Um, Satan goes after Eve to get to Adam. And this is a warning I've said to other men, be careful that somebody, uh, Satan doesn't go after your wife to get to you. You'll see that in churches where somebody will go after the pastor's wife to get to the pastor and implode the whole ministry. So your prayers would always be not only for your pastor, but for the pastor's wife. Satan goes after Eve to get to Adam, and just as Satan attacks the church so that he can try to destroy Christ. Now, again, we are one flesh with the church, just as Eve is one flesh with Adam. And his primary means of, um, attack is through deception, is through deception. Second Corinthians 11.4 says that he comes as an angel of light. So, um, If you're looking for somebody with horns, with a a very ugly countenance, you're not looking for Satan. He comes as an angel of light. His name is given in the scripture as Lucifer, which is a a bearer of light. Um, His ministers come as ministers of righteousness. So when somebody is talking to you about um, spiritual things, you need to ask yourself, are what they saying to me, does it comport with God's word? Does it comport with the Bible? Is it in agreement with God's word? That's the way that I measure what when people are trying to share things with me, is what does it say in God's word? So we see him here in Genesis chapter 3. He comes as a serpent. Now, um, a serpent, as you, everyone here has seen can be beautifully iridescent in their color. The colorings of a, of a serpent are really quite remarkable and striking, depending on how the light Uh, strikes the skin of a snake. In Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verses 11 through 17, we get a description of what Satan might have looked like in the garden. Certainly it's consistent with what an iridescent serpent would look like. And this thing starts out as a lamentation about the king of Tyrus. Again, another type of Satan here. So in verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, it says, moreover... The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13 of Ezekiel 28. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of the Lord. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, And the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Obviously a gloriously adorned angel. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15, thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. And so we have this wonderful picture of the beauty and the glory that Satan was adorned with when he was walking in the garden. And so we find Eve here is looking at something that is probably very attractive And disarming, uh, disarmingly so. Beautiful to look upon. And so, as the Lord tells us here, that he was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God, that's Jehovah Elohim, had made. And what is the first thing he does? He drops the term Jehovah from God's title that had been previously used in Genesis chapter 2. So now it's just God. Yea, hath Elohim said, We talked about that last week, that it's the Lord, it's Jehovah who brings the law. It was the Lord God who had planted both of those trees, all of the trees, um, in the garden. And so um, he drops the term Jehovah, and as I said to you last week, it'd be like calling somebody Officer Bob. Officer Bob said, don't park your car in front of my house. And then Satan comes and said, well, uh, did Bob say that? you know he drops the officer so you're it's a little bit disarming it's very subtle but it's a little bit um, disarming now this is just something personal with me but when i listen to people talk if all they can talk about is god this god that god the other thing I get a little suspicious in my thinking. If they don't speak about the Lord God or if they don't speak about Christ Jesus, I'm beginning to wonder about who they are really talking about. What are the characteristics and attributes of the God that you keep setting before me? Because there are lots of churches that are not Christian even a little bit, and they will speak about God. And in my mind, it's little g, little o, little d. Put Jehovah in front of it, and I know now that they've got somebody who's going to bring judgment for failure to keep his commandments. So I just tend to be uh, more watchful about that. If they mention Jesus, then I'm like, okay, well, we're on the right track here because we know that he is the expressed image of God. He is the visible revelation of the living God. So when they start to talk about Christ and they append to it that God, then I know that they're certainly on the right track. So we see here in Genesis 3 that Satan drops the Lord as uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So again, it was the Lord God who planted the garden. In Genesis 2.8, it is the Lord God that put the man in it. He brought forth the trees to come out of the garden. He put two trees in particular in there. One is the tree of life, and the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says of those things in the garden that they are all pleasant to the sight, and that they are all... Good for food. It says that describing all of the things that are in the garden. And so a test is set before Adam and Eve, um, and God tells them, or Him, tells um, Adam in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 2 and the Lord God commanded, hang on to that word commanded, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die now as I mentioned before this is not a conditional statement um, he doesn't say if he says when you eat it because God knows he's going to eat it God certainly knows how this is all going to play out because as I said before the fall is part of God's plan to ultimately have people that are in his image and in his likeness So Satan begins the temptation process here. He says, yea, hath God said. So he starts with a question here. And so Eve starts to get a little bit confused here. And what he says is, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now. If you think about that, and maybe I'm embarrassing myself here, I started reading that question several times, and I found myself starting to get flipped upside down in my head. I found it a little confusing, because on its face, it is a true statement. On its face, it's a true statement. If you can't eat from one tree, you can't therefore eat from every tree in the garden. So Eve starts to question herself and question God. What, what did he say? What did I understand? What was I thinking here? And so in verses two and three, Eve responds, and the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said Oops, that's not God commanded, she's dropped that. God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die here. So verse 2 is sort of true, and verse 3 we notice that she fails to identify the tree that she's not supposed to eat from, so she's getting things convoluted and mixed up in her head here. She doesn't quote God correctly, so she's dropping words from what God said, and she's adding to it from what God says. And what does God say in Revelation chapter 22? It says, if any man adds unto the words that I have said, or taketh away from the words I have said, then they shall partake of the plagues written herein. Here we have a wonderful example of Eve doing just that. She's added to the word and she's taken from the word and she's going to suffer the plagues thereof. Um, So she's questioned God here. She does not identify the tree. Um, In Genesis 2.9, we know that both of these trees are in the midst of the garden and both of them are pleasant to the sight and they're good for food. So what starts as doubt in her mind and moves to confusion and then makes her susceptible to a, a lie. There's no other word to say it. It is a out, flat-out lie in verse 4. Ye shall not surely die, is what Satan says. And that is antithetical, directly opposite of what God said. So Eve must be thinking to herself, well, you know, God must have withheld something good from me. Um, because he's got all these other things, but this one is going to make me as the gods. I will know uh, good as evil. I will be as the gods, knowing good and evil. So God must have withheld something good from me. And this is a principle we should apply in all our lives. God has never withheld any good thing from any of his saints. He's withheld nothing good from any of his elect. If you look in the material realm, you only need to go a couple miles north into Hillsboro, where you'll find that people have some very nice... Um, houses they have a great deal of wealth Wealth, but if God wanted me to have that I would be living there he does not want me to have that nor does he want me living a little bit further south where the houses aren't quite so nice he has got me exactly where he wants me to live he has withheld no good thing from me and he never withholds any good thing from any of his elect everybody has exactly what the Lord wants them to have so we see here that death is going to come from this one tree. But I want us to appreciate that it's not because the fruit was poisonous. It's not because it's not good for food. It came because God commanded, Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In the Hebrew, it's dying, die, thou shalt. Now, God commanded, That's not the way Eve responded, she said, God said. God tells us in in Genesis 2.16, God commanded the man. And in verse 11 of chapter 3, God is speaking to Adam. He says, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou should not eat? So the Lord is making it very clear here that it was a commandment in particular that you should not eat from. So again, it's not because the fruit wasn't good to eat. It's not because it didn't look good and it didn't taste good and it wasn't good for food. That's not why she died. She died due disobedience. She um, directly contradicted God's word and she did what she was told not to do. And I want us to appreciate this word of God in terms of obedience to God. When Jesus is tempted, how does he respond? He quotes from Scripture and he says, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, what I find interesting is, you know, my uh, being a bonnet I have for the different Bible versions. In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, they've taken out that man should live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. They've changed it in the other Bible versions. So they've done exactly what is um, prohibited by God. They've removed from his word. The Lord is, co- is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, Man doth not live by bread only, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, out of the mouth of the Lord, that's Jehovah, L-O-R-D, doth man live. So it's very important for us to understand that we need to obey the commandments of the Lord. And we need to um, live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. In John chapter 6, verse 68, this is the occasion when the Lord has uh, given the disciples and other people some very difficult teachings. At verse 67, it says, Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? It's been very hard for them to hear the things that he has said. Then in verse sixty eight of John chapter six, it says, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we must live by all of the words, every one of them, that come out of the Lord's life. And then verse sixty nine he says, And we believe that and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. God has commanded us, those are his words in 1 John three twenty-two. we are commanded to believe on his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are commanded to believe on him. That's not something God said. It's not like it's just a good idea to do when we share it to people. It's a commandment for everybody to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not do it, thou shalt surely die. So, um, again, looking at Scripture, we can appreciate that it was death through disobedience. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11.3, the Lord clearly says that the serpent, quote, beguiled Eve through his subtly. The serpent beguiled Eve through his subtly. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.14, it says, and this is important for us to appreciate, this is 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So we appreciate a couple things here when we're going to go look at and consider what Adam did. We know that he was not deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he did what he did. And so we appreciate again that it doesn't really matter how this happened. Eve violated God's commandment and as a result of it she died. So, now here we are with a $64,000 question. What is Adam going to do? Now, in verse 6 here, we should appreciate, in the idiomatic language of the Hebrews, there is a time gap between when Eve took and ate and then when she gave it to her husband. So there's a time gap in verse 6 when it says, um, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Time gap and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat." So there's a time gap between her taking and eating and when she gave it to her husband. So what is Adam going to do here? He is thinking is not corrupted by sin. Satan hasn't come and given him this message of deception. He's only been talking to his wife here. And so we have to appreciate that Adam has a, a big picture understanding of uh, God, better than obviously eve does but nevertheless um, he's faced with a difficult decision to make now i want you to think about when abraham offered up isaac You remember when abraham went to the mountain to offer up his son isaac and he told those the men that had come with him he says he was going to go up into the mountain make an offering and the lad and i shall return abraham knows he's going up there to slay his son but he has said we're both coming back Well, he knows that because God could not fulfill his promise to make a a nation of many people out of him through the promise on Isaac, unless Isaac is alive. So Adam's got a similar kind of a thing here. God wants to make man and woman in his image and likeness. And if Eve is dead, uh, I'm not sure how that's going to happen unless I go with her. So there's a big picture here that Adam's got working things out in his head. As far as he's concerned right now, she's the walking dead, and he's going to live forever, but he's going to die. Now, he has named all of the animals, and yet there was no help meet for him. In other words, there was nobody that was suitable for him. She is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. And again, Ephesians 5 points right back here. Therefore, Because they are bone of bone and flesh of flesh, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall clave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's exactly what the Lord tells us in Ephesians 5, 30 and 32. That's the commentary on this. This is, again, as I said, this is a love story. In verse 25 of Ephesians, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. This is... What is set before Adam? And I told you already. The Scripture said he is a type of Christ Himself. And I want to share this, as I do frequently. Every shadow and every type in the Bible comes short of the reality. But this comes as close as it can come. <laughs> in John 15:13, it says, "Greater love hath no man than that a man lay down his life for his friends." That a man laid down his life for his friends. Ephesians five twenty-five again, Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So here he is. Here's Adam. He has left his father and his mother. And so he chose to disobey God in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. And he clave unto his wife. Just as God laid all our iniquities upon his son, says that in Isaiah fifty three, eight, that he hath laid upon him all of our iniquities. And just as it says in Second Corinthians five twenty-one, it says, Of God, the Father, He hath made him to be sin, who knew no sin. God laid our sin on, on, on His Son Jesus Christ, and so too does Eve give to Adam. The, um, that which he is not supposed to eat. And what does it say? And he did eat. The Lord was given our sins and he bore them. And he bore them to the cross. So, as our deacon read this morning in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 14, it says that death passed upon all men because of what took place here. In verse 12 it says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. In the Greek it is in whom all have sin. So this is something we should appreciate here, that everybody on this planet stands guilty before God for two reasons. One is their own sin that they've done, and the other reason is because that they were in the loins of Adam when he sinned. So we sinned in Adam. And so that's what verse 12 is. And so as it goes on here, and and the logic is, there wasn't a law really until Moses came, but yet death reigned. Well, why did death reign? Because everybody's guilty because they were in the loins of Adam when he sinned. And so in um, in Hebrews, what does it say in verse 10, verse 26? I will read that. It says, for if we sin willfully. That's what Adam did. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. And that's where people are when they've been preached the gospel and they reject Christ. There is no more sacrifice for sin. The only sacrifice that can be made is Christ himself, and that's going to be the sacrifice that Adam will um, be offered through Jesus Christ. So we'll get to there. So he willfully sinned, and so there's nothing to do but to wait for the judgment. And so what does he do in his wife? You'll notice that in the verses um, 7 here, it says their eyes were opened, both of them, and they knew, plural, that they were naked, plural, and they, plural, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves, plural, aprons. They both enter into this now, where they are going to cover themselves with the self-righteousness of man. And what does Isaiah 64, 6 says? Is all our righteousnesses are as filthy... Rags, all our righteousness are, are a filthy rags. So those fig leaves represent the works of men. Think of all of the churches all over the planet. Think of all the works that people engage in to justify themselves before the Lord. They are inadequate. In Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, it says, "He that covereth his sins shall not prosper." That's exactly what they're doing. They're covering their nakedness, which is a type of of sins. It says that in um, Revelation 16, 15. It says there, Behold, I come as a thief in the night. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he shall walk naked, and they shall see his shame. So they've got some garments on that are of their own construct, um, but they're wholly inadequate. Uh, No pun intended there. Um, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That's the message of the gospel. Um, Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that in Romans 2, 4 it says that it is the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. Who is going to come to Adam in his state there? It's going to be Christ himself. God is going to come to him. In 1 John 1, 9, again, the scripture says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's going to transpire, we'll get into this later, is there is going to be a confession. Adam is going to confess the the sin. So big picture in Genesis 3 here, we're going to see a call. It is the Lord who called and asked Adam where he was. He knows where he is, for goodness sakes. He's God. The questions that God asks, he asks for our benefit. He knows the answers to all these things. So there's going to be a call in uh, verse 9. There's going to be a promise in verse 15 about the um, seed of the woman uh, bruising the uh, head of the seed of the serpent. That's the gospel. There's going to be a gift offered in verse 21 and that's where the Lord makes coats of skins and clothes them and this is the gospel in in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 it says the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord we are the recipients of a gift eternal life is a gift and so in uh, Genesis 3 and 7 we can appreciate that they know that they're naked in verse seven and so they cover themselves, but Adam knows it's inadequate because in verse 11, he says, Who told, um, who told thee that thou wast naked? Um, hast thou eaten of the tree where this man said the word? Okay, uh, oh, first 10, I'm sorry. Adam says here, And I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He's declaring himself to be naked, after he's clothed himself with the aprons of the fig leaves. Adam knows that this is inadequate here, that it's not uh, covering him. So I want us to appreciate that Adam knows the gospel and has an appreciation of where this is going to go, that in order for God to have uh, a people that are in his image and his likeness, the fall was indeed necessary, and it was necessary for him to be united with his wife in death. And so as we um, move forward in Genesis, I want us to appreciate that Adam was not um, deceived. Uh, he did not do something that uh, I know people are going to, they, they look at the confession and they act like he's pointing the finger everywhere but at himself. But Adam knew exactly what he was going to do. He had an appreciation for uh, the gospel. And what he did was actually in obedience to verse 24, where he had left his father and his mother. He clave them to his wife because he was one flesh with her. And he was behaving as a man should, and he was behaving exactly as Christ did when our sins were laid upon him and he clave unto us in death. And it's through his death, burial, and resurrection that, of course, we have fullness of life in God for eternity. And I'll close with that. Amen.